Tom Bernard Show with co-host Catherine Brandt, Andy Brandt Bernard, and Cassie Schrader. We'll be right back. Kick off hour two, Tom Bernard Show. Join us every Thursday at 2 o'clock Central for our newest podcast, Car Selling Secrets. It'll be co-hosted by me, Tom Bernard, and Doug Sprinthal from Walzer Automotive Group. We'll be talking about lots of stuff relating to how dealership sales actually work, as well as the latest product updates from nearly every make sold in the USA. If you have questions for the podcast, either email Doug at Walzer.com or call the studio live at 952-800-1492. Michael Bryant, Brad Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt and talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. <laughs> it's been good, ladies and gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? At, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. What's the name of this? I was blind. Final countdown. The the final countdown. The final countdown. Yep. Is it that one? Yeah. That's like one of my favorite commercials they have now. That is very funny. Oh, I know. It is funny. And my kids started doing it every time they'd pop something in the microwave. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That is very funny. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, what are you going to do? Um, in any case, ladies and gentlemen, Mom just uh, pointed something out about uh, a little problem that the, the state of New York is having because of this. Uh, you can't write off. What is it, Catherine? Well, they're blaming Trump for the of course. budget shortfall of $2.3 billion. Which wow. Which is, I guess, yeah, two, <laughs> that's a lot. Um, according to the governor, it was Trump's tax cut that caused many of the state's richest residents who pay 40 per six. 46% of the state income tax, I don't know what percentage of people this is, to either change their primary residence or leave New York entirely. Hmm. So uh, I don't know. That's a lot of money. In the state of New York, if you earn over $1.078 million per year, you pay an income tax to the state of almost 9%. Yeah, so, so they should have plenty of money. I don't know where it's all going. Well, 9% is pretty high on your income yeah. tax for just state. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Um, but they're saying that um, 
Democratic-run states like New York knew that their rich residents would not feel the sting of that $900,000 tax bill because that $900,000 could be written off their federal tax bill. So they're saying that that was a sleazy way for blue states to steal money from federal taxpayers to make all of us pay for their tax rates. I don't know if the SALT taxes is actually helping the economy or hurting the economy, or the, the lack of being able to write off your... Your taxes. Oh, there's no question it's hurting the economy. Because, and, and the reason that Donald Trump did it is to punish the states that didn't vote for him, being New York, Illinois, Minnesota, and California. But if it's supposed, it was, I, this is where I'm confused. It was supposed to make it in better, even an even playing field or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Wasn't that the whole point? That's what he said, yeah. Well, it's not. it doesn't seem like it's having that effect. No, it's not. It, he did it to get back at the states that didn't vote for him. Yeah, there's no question. The larger metropolitan areas, and then Minnesota, is so far left that he wants to just, you know, punish the entire state and everybody in it. So I don't know. So you think it about. is Donald Trump's fault for everybody <clears throat> leaving the state of yes, New I, York? Yes, I do. I absolutely think it's his fault because he made it impossible for them to live there. It was a stupid idea. I think, yeah. It's I, destroying the housing industry. It's really hurting the ho- the luxury housing market. It is. There's no question about it. He he did it all by himself, and it has really hurt the housing market. Well, and all, no, a number of other things. Well, also, I mean, property taxes have just gotten crazy. Well, that's very very. It true. used to be that your house was valued at about I don't know fifty percent, sixty percent of what it was worth. Now it's pretty darn close to what it's worth. Yeah, that's true. That's for property tax true. purposes, so I don't know. So we'll see how it all develops. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. The whole thing is just uh, these politicians, could they hurt any more people than they already do? I, I doubt it. They hurt everyone to line their own pockets with cash. Uh, and not all. I'm not saying all politicians do that, but I would say at least 90 to 95% of them do it. It's all about how much money they can put in their pockets, and then after that, maybe they'll think about you. Maybe. It's a possibility. Well, this has happened before. I mean, when they raised uh, when they raised sales tax to what was it at one time in Manhattan? It was crazy. Wasn't it like eleven percent? I think it was even higher than it was even that. Higher than People 11%? just went over to Jeez. Jersey and bought everything, and then all of a sudden, all the stores were closing because nobody was buying anything in Manhattan. I mean, that's the problem: is every time they try to solve something, they cause another problem. Mm, yeah, I think that is true. Uh, and, and I don't know if it was... He didn't... He wasn't even trying to solve anything. It's just he... I don't, do you think he did that because he is in the real estate business and he could get think, buy things a lot cheaper? Uh, I wonder. I don't know. No, I know he can't do that while he's president. Um, I'm sure he pays... Well, I don't know if he pays much tax on Mar-a-Lago because he bought that as a derelict historical building. Yeah, that's so exactly right. So he probably has a bunch of exemptions on Mar-a-Lago. I would not doubt that at all. Didn't, didn't he buy it for like $9 million, and it turns out... Uh, oh, and it's acres of property right on the ocean. It's an amazing amount of is. real estate. It's a hideous building, though. Well, that, that, that building is ugly as hell. It, back in the day, it was... <laughs> Something to behold. It looked like it looked like Cinderella's castle or something. I don't even know what the hell it looks like. Uh, mm. It sort of looks like a Mediterranean Cinderella church thing. I don't know. 
I'm sure people can look up pictures of it if they want to see it. Yeah. It's, uh, we, we ate dinner there a couple of times, and I... Yeah, before yeah, bef- well, he was president. Before he was president. He did own it, but yeah. it was before he was president. And the people that you want to talk about some pretentious pains in the ass... <laughs> The people that went to eat dinner there, oh my well, god! Well, they are the serious rich. I mean, I think oh, that, yeah. I think their Sunday brunch there is like five hundred dollars a piece or something. I think it is. If you get an invitation, I think you might be right about that. Yeah, yeah. If you get invited, we got invited by by uh, not by Donald yeah, Trump, by but by friends. by a couple of members there, and I, I, it's quite an experience. But you want to put up with some snooty bastard ass people? Man. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Is there such a thing as bastard ass? I don't know. Annette Funicello was there. Who? When we yeah, were there. That's right. Annette Funicello was there when we were there. Annette Funicello was a Mickey Mouse Club member oh, the very first. A long time ago. And then she had a, an acting career. Yeah, she, she was like those beach blanket bingo kind yeah, of. Yeah, exactly. These horrible call, movies. Yeah, when I was a kid, I, I loved the Mickey Mouse Club, and I used to call her Annette Funny Jello because I couldn't say Funicello. <laughs> yeah, well, Funny Jello. Annette Funny Jello. Works for me. It works for me. I got no problem with that. What was that song that went, Annette Funicello, ho, ho, ho? Yeah, you're right. What was that song? I don't remember, but I, I do remember that song, but I don't remember what it was. just came to me. I don't remember what that was. Who knows? Somebody so, knows. Ladies and gentlemen, Karl Marx's grave will never be the same again after a vandal went at it with a hammer, according oh, to the charity my. that maintains a memorial in London. Friends of Highgate Cemetery Trust says Marx's name was specifically targeted on the original 1883 marble plaque from his gravestone which was incorporated into a larger monument erected in 1954. It also bears the names of family members, including Marx's wife. We will repair as far as possible, but uh, the monument will bear those battle scars for the future, the trust says per the Guardian. Uh, regardless of what anyone thinks about Marx's philosophy, I just think it is an appalling thing to do, adds trust CEO Ian Dungabal. Uh, the person has really done their best to ol- obliterate Karl Marx's name, noting no other damage was found at Highgate Cemetery after police were called Monday. It just did come up again, by the way, and maybe this is what pissed them off so much. <clears throat> but uh, it did come up again that Karl Marx told everybody that no private person should ever own any land. You should not be allowed to own land. The land is for the people, and therefore no private individual should own land. Except for he owned land. Mm, he did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's the whole problem you got here. He's just another one of those do as talk I say, out their ass. Yeah, people. not mm-hmm. as I do people. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's for you. I'm special. You know, it, it just so that might be why this person got so angry because even though it was revealed before, it was brought up again. And I think some people didn't know that he owned land and lied and told everybody else don't own any land. No, no private individual should own any land except for you, of course. So, you know. Well, maybe yeah. maybe he was mad that he had to pay to go see his grave. Because remember, you read that news yeah. story. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. yeah. A Marxist. Yeah. Marxist capitalism right there. Yeah. Marxist <laughs> communist. Technically, technically, he still owns land because his body's buried in in a, a plot. So Yeah, that's right. He's Nobody occupying gave it land. To him. <laughs> 
He is. He's occupying land. I don't understand yeah. what the hell's wrong with you there, Carl. Yeah, I just call Carol. him KM, actually. Yeah. Hey, KM. Hey, KM, what's happening? What's happening? <laughs> it's not the first time vandals have targeted the grave of the German philosopher known for the works like the Communist Manifesto. There was a plot to destroy it using a pipe bomb in 1970, according to Dungavel, who mentions more recent cases involving paint and ro- rope. What? what do you uh, mean? Probably rope. like tie rope around his neck to symbolize, etc. Now, who's the guy standing next to him in the monument? So, who is that? I don't know. I that is, that, is, or is Joe that two different shots. Of- <laughs> Joe it's Joe Namath. Okay, well, that makes sense. I could see. Yes, it's very reminiscent of Joe Namath. If it's not Joe Namath, it looks just like him Let's or not. Let's see here. I don't know who in the other Highgate? person would be in that. Uh, in Highgate, yeah. Let's see. Highgate Cemetery. There's Karl Marx, who looks a lot like Orson Welles with a beard. At least in this, uh, on this monument. Oh, you're talking about the picture on Newser? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. not... The grave. I don't know why they have that. Well, this is this is oh, a different. This is the. Oh, I thought it was next to the grave. Uh, this is a great. It's a statue in China. I don't know why oh, they didn't. Okay. I don't. I don't know why they didn't just use a picture of the actual grave, but. No, Frederick Engels is the other person. The founders yes. of communism at a snowy <clears throat> park. Uh, on Tuesday, January 29th. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. You can all be communists, but not us. Mm-hmm. We won't be communists, but you will be. Oh, okay. Well, so it's not it good for works. everyone. Yes, it's all it, it always works. A friend of mine, uh, her father is Cuban, and her Cuba. his m- mother owned a, a, some sort of factory um, and was very successful. And then when they went into communism, they just confiscated the factory and made her work for mm-hmm. her own company. <laughs> well, you know, that'll happen. Yeah, and it's, it's never, you know, it's never been privately owned again. I, I just don't understand how you want all every single thing to be owned by the government, especially, I mean, with the history of governments being nothing but corrupt through the centuries. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand how this is a smart idea. Well, I think people have this notion that uh, if it's all public property, then I don't have any responsibility. I think people are just trying to shirk responsibility of ownership. That's all this is, basically. Because the top guys, look, Russia is a communist country. Not anymore. Party's over. Putin holds on to all the wealth in that country. And the rest of the people have nothing because, well, there are a few industrialists there and all the rest of it. Putin's buddies. But, yeah, he's uh, – how many billions of dollars is he worth, Andy? Do you know Vladimir – excuse me. Let me say it like Steven Seagal. Vladimir Putin. <laughs> God, I hate it when he does that. And I have to tell you, I was talking to Vladimir Putin. Mm. Oh, God. Okay. He's working on his next movie accent, I guess. But, yeah, Putin's a multi, multi, multi-billionaire. He does whatever he wishes to do. And if you don't like it, you'll end up dead. It's not... Communism no, and socialism... It's not exactly uh, easy to find out his actual net worth. Well, I suppose not. No. Because he hides it all, I'm sure. Yeah, But, exactly. you know, uh, the president last night... Did you guys see the, the speech last night, the State of the Union? Of course not. No, I didn't watch not. it. Cassie, any... No. You didn't watch it but, either? Charlie, Catherine, uh, Catherine I was, oh, I was just going to say, Charlie from Albuquerque sent me a, a picture because um, he's like, oh, if you guys talk about it, you got to bring it up. It's um, some car, I think it was a carpet at the house gallery 
It has swastika mm-hmm. signs in it. I'll have to send the picture over to Kath. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In a little hard to swallow. Poor decor. <laughs> that's what that is. Yeah, poor decor. That would be good. And where is that? It was at the um, house gallery. House gallery um, had swastika's designs in the upholstery. What's a house gallery? I'm wondering if it's like a off-site from where the State of the Union was <clears throat> for like press and all that. I'm assuming. Yeah, maybe that sounds. God, a I had never heard that. Convenient. Yeah. Yeah, they might have been drawn in there. Charlie, what the hell are you trying to pull? Here we go. <laughs> now we're talking. But yeah, it's. Uh, we could talk about that in the second segment. Catherine, I did watch the State of the Union last night. I thought uh, everybody behaved okay. The president, I thought he made a very solid speech, and uh, they didn't care much about it when he said, this will never be a socialist country, which uh, some people <laughs> didn't like, and other people cheered loudly. Uh, he talked about a couple of different things. He talked, you know, about the walls. Or, but again, I, 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 my personal opinion, this is just my personal opinion, that if they will not, build the wall, he is going to send tens of thousands of troops down to the border, and you know how much that's going to cost the American yeah. taxpayer? Yeah. I mean, they're going to be shoulder to shoulder, so nobody gets by them. Uh, so how, how long is the stretch again? Is what, like 500 miles or something that he, I don't know. That he wants walls put up? I think it's around there. I think it's around 500 miles. So I would assume, basically, if you're talking about the average man or woman... Let's say they have a, a shoulder width of what, uh, two feet, two and a half feet. Two feet. Yeah, it's pretty wide, shoulders. isn't it? Well, mine are. Of course, I'm. Built. Yours are four yeah. feet wide. Mine are four feet <laughs> wide because I'm so cool. But you know. But yeah, if you want to go by footage, let's say just let's just throw out there. It's probably more than two feet for some people and less than two feet. So we'll just go at two feet. Okay. Okay, so one mile is fifty-two hundred and eighty feet. Correct. Mm-hmm. So, so that would be about twenty six hundred and forty soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder, times five hundred. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of troops. Well, that just doesn't make any sense to have to put man manpower. Yeah. Person power. Person power. Uh, to do a job that a, a barrier could. I mean, no, I, it I just it really just doesn't make any sense. But the problem is, is that everybody's digging their heels in so hard. Yeah, yeah they nothing, are. It's I just true. don't see how anything's going to happen. I mean, I watched the State of the Union. I fell asleep during a lot of it. You watched the whole thing. I did watch the whole um, thing. The, I mean, the crossed arms. And I know it's so glaring, sad. The you know looks. It's just it, with Indeed. just nothing but hate and non-compromise all written all over their faces. How is anything going to change? We'll be right back to talk more about it, Tom Bernard Show. A program that benefits the homeowner and not the realtor? Do you want a guaranteed offer on your home? Hey, it's Tom with my realtor, Chris Lindahl, who has some exciting news to share. Hey, Tom, we are super excited to announce our guaranteed offer program. Here's how it works. If you qualify, we will guarantee you an offer on your house within 48 hours, which means you could be closing in three weeks. No staging, no cleaning, no decluttering, and of course, no open houses. This is your hassle-free way to sell your home. If you qualify for the program, you will get a competitive offer in 48 hours, period. Sounds like a stress-free way to sell your home. 
It is, Tom. Some homeowners want the convenience to be able to sell their home quickly without going through the stress of showings, open houses, and so many more headaches, especially if they found their dream home and need to sell fast. You do need to qualify for this program, but that's quick and convenient as well. To see if you qualify for the guaranteed offer program from Chris Lindahl Real Estate, go to chrislindahl.com right now or call 763-401-SOLD. Once again, that's chrislindahl.com, Chris with a K. If you're tired of feeling frustrated because your clothes don't fit like they used to, then Nutramost is for you. Thanks to the Sheehy brothers and staff at Nutramost in Plymouth, I am down 92.5 pounds. The Nutramost program is amazing. I lost over 40 pounds during each of my first two 40-day rounds. You can have great success just like me because Nutramost is customized for each individual person, and the staff at Nutramost will be there for you every step of the way. Start your weight loss journey today and let Nutramost help change your life. Give yourself this wonderful gift or give this program as a present. Nutramost guarantees that you lose 20 pounds or more. Nutramost helped me change my life and they can help you too. Call 763-333-7337. That's 763-333-7337. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we, uh, I just ran through all the stats I was talking about earlier. Um, basically, it says, uh, as far as people in the U.S. military, currently it is about 1.3 million people. Mm-hmm. And if you stand shoulder to shoulder that over that 500-mile stretch, it's 1.3 million people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, okay. It's too many. Uh, but he would have to send pretty much everybody in the U.S. military down to the border to just stand there. That would be rather expensive. Well, I wonder what the daily cost of uh, paying our military is. Oh. 1.3 million people mm. in. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I have a well, 2017, it was 1,281,900. So it's a little short of 1.3 million, although it might have expanded in 18. Of course, it might have gotten to be less in 18 as well. But. Um, yeah, I, I would say um, it's a lot of people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Joe from Louisville said, well, here comes the draft. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start drafting people out. Yeah, I don't know what they're going to do, but they're going to have to figure it out. Uh, one way or another, we're going to have to. Oh, what's that? Yeah, it says there actually uh, there are seven reserve components with an additional 800,000. So it's actually about 2,090,000 people. So it would be about two-thirds of all military people would have to show up on site to prevent uh, uh, illegal crossings. And I, one thing I did like about his speech last night is he made it very clear, and I've always said this, if you want to come to this country legally, we have no problem with that. You know, you want to come here for a better life. And once again, I would point out, I don't see any evidence, and maybe there is, but I couldn't find it. I looked and looked and looked. There's no evidence that these people from around the equator are going south to South America. Uh, is anybody trying to, to, to emigrate to South America? Because I couldn't find any evidence of it whatsoever. Well, if it's too hot, wouldn't you go up into the mountains where it's cooler? Well, the further south you go, the cooler it gets. Yeah. And the further north you go here, the cooler it gets. So mm-hmm. if you're going to come to the United States, why wouldn't you go to, you know, I don't know about Brazil. Does Brazil like anybody? Brazil. I don't think Brazil likes anyone. Do they, <laughs> do, well, do they have tough immigration laws? They don't want... 
Yeah, I don't know. Maybe could somebody, look, Andy? Would you look that up and see if if South America, South American countries, uh, on the very northern border of South America, those countries have very tough immigration yes, laws. I mean, most everybody lives in the north east, right? Of South America. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, Brazil, I think, is by far the largest country in South Net America. Migration rate by know. country. Well. Uh, Let's see. Now Joe from Louisville says, no, it's a shithole in South America. <laughs> well, well you know. it's not wrong in a lot of places, mainly because well, of corruption. It is. Well, Venezuela is a perfect example. Corruption yeah. destroyed oh, yeah. that it's country. sad. Destroyed it. I mean, those people don't have any food. <clears throat> mm-hmm. They don't One, have medicine. They have nothing. One thing that was kind of scary earlier in my life several years ago is I was talking to a, a, a CIA agent. And we we're talking about this, that, and the other thing. And he mentioned to me that Hugo Chavez was dead. So I was talking to some people about that Hugo Chavez being dead and all the rest of it. Um, it wasn't announced for another six months that he was dead. So I, just because I ran across the right guy, knew Hugo Chavez was dead six months before everybody else did. Well, it's that not was a unlike, uncomfortable. Not unlike Britain with their crazy kings and queens that they wouldn't let anybody yeah. talk to for a few yeah, years. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> the only countries know, so, in South America that don't have a negative net migration rate are Chile, which is just above zero, down. and right. Suriname, which has it's like it's low, but it still technically has a net like people migrating there. Okay, so they, basically there's no emigration to South America. <clears throat> Pretty very, much very little, yeah. And why is that? Is uh, it because of their immigration know. laws? Would they, keep, would they keep records of people just going from area to area, though? I don't know. Well, no, they do, yes, absolutely, because oh. just to get in the, onto the continent in the first place. You'd have to go to one of the northern border countries, and I don't. Brazil doesn't want anybody moving there. I don't think. Uh, let's, uh, I've never been there, but that's what I've heard is Brazil doesn't want anybody moving there. So I don't know what to tell you. And then Joe, I told you it's a shithole. Okay, well thank you, thank you very much. Now I've got a very clear understanding of that. My brother go, used to go to Ecuador all the time. Oh, and did he? He thought it was a lovely area, very impoverished, impoverished, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, a lovely area. But yeah, there's nothing you can do if the government's going to take yep. all the money. Yeah. So I mean, look, nobody wants to leave people <clears throat> being treated like dirt in their no. home countries or being killed in their home countries. But we have to do it legally. We can't just allow people to wander in. It just no. doesn't work. Well, it doesn't even make sense. And none doesn't make any sense. But as long as you'll vote for me, I want you to come in. If you'll vote for me, boy, that'll be great. Everybody can come in. Just now, they have to do it the way they have to do it. The problem is they're Should not supposed to be voting because they're not citizens. No, but well, so. I thought the state, the state of California, gets a bunch more electoral college votes because they allow, allow anybody to vote. Yeah, they do. Now we're getting felons. Felons are all going to vote. They, they're trying to pass that law right now. Look, everybody just wants, we all go to work, we all earn a living, we all pay our bills, we all do this. I, I, I don't care for it that people get to live in, uh, in a different manner. Either contribute to society, or I don't know why you should reap the benefits of society. If you don't want to contribute, then don't. That's your business, but then don't expect us to pick up the tab. I agree with that. If you're going to contribute, you're in, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's it. 
That's all I'm saying. So I don't hate anyone, and I don't, you know, oh, my God, these Mexicans. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying you got to do it legal. We have, how many legal Mexican immigrants do we have in the United, the United States? There's millions of them, A right? lot, yeah. 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 So what's wrong with that? That, that worked. <clears throat> you know, the only time I didn't like it when Spanish people were allowed to move to America is when Michelle Tafoya was allowed into the country. <laughs> but, you know, that's the only problem I've ever had. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> that's just common sense right she. there. You know, nothing but trouble. Skeptics, com, uh, conspiracy theorists, deep staters, Saints fans, and tinfoil hat enthusiasts gather around. We have a new one for you. On Friday, February 1st, 2019, uh, two weeks removed from an NFC championship pass interference debacle that had big easy sleuths digging up the SoCal addresses of an entire officiating crew, <laughs> the NFL Network debuted its brand new commercial congratulating the Patriots on their Super Bowl 53 victory 48 hours before kickoff. Oh. Mm. oh, oh. This is not good news for the NFL, is it? Oh, my God, that is unbelievable. I was right all along. Yeah, perhaps Andy was right that the whole thing is fixed from moment one anyway. Certainly seems to be Suffice to say, Office Max saw a big run on red markers this weekend. Now, we're not saying the NFL rigged the Super Bowl, even though Todd Gurley's one uh, first down run of the night was brought back on a phantom holding call, or that there's even any bias, despite the fact that a guy who was suspended four games for PED use earlier this season won the Super Bowl MVP without so much as a random drug test. But tied up in a boiler room somewhere deep inside NFL HQ, there's an associate commercials coordinator who has answers. By tomorrow morning, his Social Security number will be scrubbed from the government databases and the trail will go cold. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that, but take solace in the fact that somebody on this giant football in the sky knew the truth. Of course, we here at The Loop encourage you to think for yourself and make your own judgment calls if you want to ignore Spygate and Deflategate and Headsetgate. And the fact the guy who was federally indicted uh, for selling medication, he claimed cured cancer but actually didn't, feeds Tom Brady mystery pills by the spoonful, then go ahead. Bury your head in the Cape Cod sand, but where there's smoke, there's generally fire, and something tells us the Pats will be burning in it for all of eternity. They predict well, they didn't predict it. They said the Patriots had won the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 53, 48 hours before kickoff. Hmm. That's a little frightening, don't well, you do think? You, do you think that they maybe pre recorded like a commercial and they accidentally played it? Maybe, possibly, yeah. Yeah. possibility because I mean, they have all like the shirts pre printed and all this stuff for whoever wins so i'm wondering if they created some commercials and it accidentally ran uh two days prior to the super bowl and i would say oh that's not possible to happen but i work in the uh the uh broadcasting business and i'm here to tell you it's very likely somebody was not paying attention (laughs) wrong commercial (laughs) oh i'm just telling you flat out it, it happens so often i can't even tell you it, it's you get these things, and all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute, this says blah blah blah. We can't say that on our air. Oh, that's right. I was supposed to take that out. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you were supposed to take it out, but you didn't. Whatever, you know. Although I will tell you, that's one of the things I loved about Tony Lee. When Tony Lee would do some uh, production, he would, as a smartass, just. Uh, write things either in the middle of commercials, at the very end of commercials, 
that was very, very funny, but people, because they were not paying attention, <laughs> yeah. said them anyway. At one point, there was a person reading a commercial that Tony had altered a little bit. It was about dog food. <laughs> and they're reading along, they go, it's just wonderful. This is the greatest dog food. Don't you think so, Tinker? <laughs> SFX dog bark. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> they actually read SFX dog bark. And then the other one, the other one that I love, and it was Dan Colhane, so he took it as a, Dan's a great guy, too. But he's reading a commercial, and I was like, make sure you come in to Midwest Federal today. Die, aliens, die. <laughs> <laughs> Tony was wonderful. He is a guy, both Dan and Tony, you just could, great people to work with. You could certainly post things like that, too. You could just, you know, write an inflammatory sentence and then just write mm-hmm. a bunch of just absolute <laughs> crazy crap, and nobody would even read it. No. I love SFX dog bark. I ran the commercial. I ran the commercial and went, did that just say what I think it said? Yeah. Yeah, it did. It absolutely did. So are you saying they wouldn't let him near the teleprompter? Uh, yeah, oh, God. No. Tony Lee yeah. would have a heyday with that, wouldn't he? Oh, with a teleprompter? Oh, <laughs> yeah. God, he'd have, he'd have a, the field day, as they say. <laughs> the absolute field day. But, God, that stuff was fun. It was so much fun working with all those people. And I, you know, I love Mark Rosen, and I really miss miss him so much. He's a, he's a dear friend, and now he's not on TV anymore, which is really uncomfortable. I mean, Mark Rosen's always been a – Mark is six days younger than I am. I was born November 7th. He was born six days later on November 13th. He's been part of my television viewing life since I was 17 years old because he started at, uh, at CCO Channel 4 when he was 17. Wow. And now he's not on anymore, and that's really, really uncomfortable for me because Mark Rosen's always been a big part of my sports television watching experience. You know, mm-hmm. but he's still doing radio, which is great because he's really, really good at that. Um, just a really good guy. I've been very lucky in that. Again, uh, except for on this show, I've worked with really good people. <laughs> Thanks. I heard that. See, see the joke? It's, it's my family and friends. So, you know, <laughs> it's a little joke I'm tossing out there. Hilarious, darling. Apparently, it didn't uh, hit any home runs as far as that's concerned. You were you were counting on the fact that we weren't listening. That's well, a, it's yeah. like, as per you usual. Were hoping. We as per living. usual, so yeah, no problem. Don't worry about my feelings. I'll Everything will work to. out. Ju- <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I'll try not to. Uh, what the hell? But in any case, um, what the hell were we just talking about when we went to break last time? Because I wanted to briefly uh, comment uh, on that again. You South ju- America? No, I don't, it doesn't matter. Communism? It's no big deal. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about communism. Oh, they got a thing in the Star Tribune this morning. Fact check Trump's claims. Oh, God. Dear. Um, I'll just run who, through a who couple. Who checks of them. the fact checking? Yeah, that's uh, the Trump thing. said, uh, and when he said this last night, I said, "Well, that's not right." He said, and I quote: "Our brave troops have now been fighting in the Middle East for almost 19 years. Well, almost 19 years. I guess if he said almost, yeah, it's pretty much. Uh, well, how close are we? Uh, three years. Oh, well, they've been there that's six, not that 16 close. years. That, March of 2003. Well, almost 19 is a weirdly specific thing to say. Yeah, almost yeah, 20 yeah, makes exactly sense. Right. But almost, right. why 19? It's true. Um, 
Describing progress over the last two years, Trump said nearly 5 million Americans have been lifted off food stamps. The number of people receiving food stamps actually hasn't declined that much. Well, how much has it declined? Yeah, I they never actually – they never explain why it's wrong. They just say, actually, that's wrong. Take my word for it. Well, okay. the thing is, is that somebody's providing him with these numbers. Well, here's what right? I understand. Yeah, he's Listen not doing this. this research himself. Or, yeah, he's, yeah. No. he's not going door to door. Yeah. No. Government data showed there were 44.2 million people participating in the Supplemental Nutrition and Assistance Program, or SNAP. 44.2 million. We used to call it food stamps. Jesus. 44.2 million before Trump took office. In 2018, there were 40.3 million. Well, so there's still, that's 3.9. Yeah, that's 4 million people. It's 4 million instead of 5 million. Uh, what's the difference? It's still down 4 million. Give them credit for it. Because that's not allowed. Well, guess, they, uh, they, uh, they're very, very specific about things, especially things that don't matter, because then they yeah, can say yeah. Trump has lied 5,000 times in just the past year yeah, like Look, about like little tiny things that don't matter. Uh, didn't somebody just say facts don't matter, morality <clears throat> matters? Yeah. Who was that again? That. And look, I don't think anybody in the show is an over-the-top Trump fan. That's not worth saying no. at all. Uh, you know, I don't. I'm not a big fan, and I don't think most people on the show are. I don't think anybody on the show is actually. Uh, a big I just Trump can't fan. spend my time mm-hmm. hating him. No, yeah. I of course I just can't not. do it. And I, you know, and I'll give credit where credit's due. I mean, you know, Jesse Ventura had a couple of good ideas. You know, mm. it's okay. It's okay. Mostly moving to Mexico. That was his best <laughs> idea. What a dickhead. I mean, people, you know, that you don't like can still have good ideas. There have been some people over there asking me to run for president. There's been a lot of interest from certain parties. Yeah, okay. Why don't you calm down there? He'd probably win. We will be back. Special guest coming up next, Tom Bernard Show. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. Right now, Sabre and Bryant are teaming up to offer 0% financing for 36 months when you buy a new Bryant furnace. This is the perfect time to replace your old furnace with a new trouble-free, energy-efficient furnace from Sabre. And when you buy Bryant equipment, you're getting one of the most trusted names in the industry. This 0% offer is available for a limited time. Call Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning to find out more, and please tell them that Tom sent you. Saber and Bryant, whatever it takes. Tom Bernard here to tell you, Priority Courier Experts has immediate openings for drivers looking for more. Priority drivers are independent contractors who set their own hours, start from their own driveways, and deliver local on-call parcels and freight, which means you're home for dinner every night, and you get paid weekly. Right now, Priority's driver-friendly lease-to-own program has brand-new dock trucks, flatbeds, curtain sides, and tractor trailers just waiting to be driven home. And Priority is also offering a $4,000 sign-on bonus to qualified drivers. So if you've got the skills, we can get you qualified to start driving a brand new truck in as little as three days. Calling all drivers. Come get the $4,000 sign-on bonus you deserve for all the knowledge and experience you bring to the delivery business. Call our fleet reps right now at 651-748-4477 or visit them online at Priority.com. Priority Courier Experts. Every time you call us, we deliver. Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble, give a whistle. And this will help things turn out for the best. Based. Oh, 
eyes look on the bright side of life. <laughs> Isn't the guy hanging upside down on a cross while he's singing this? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think it's he's hanging upside down on a crucifix while he's singing. Uh, Always look on the bright side. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it could be worse. <laughs> it could be worse. Every could day be. is a blessing. Let me know when David's ready to go. He if is you would. ready. That'd be great. Oh, he is. David Morgan, how are you, sir? Hi, how are you doing? Fantastic. You're, you're in for it today, though, David, because there are no bigger Monty Python fans in America than this show. Uh, you especially. I ah. adore Monty Python. Absolutely. When I first met him, all he did was quote Monty Python. <laughs> like, it's, it's true. Like to the point and where you it was didn't annoying. mind? Well, I got used to it after a while. I love her, though, David. Don't forget. <laughs> uh, I'll give you an example of how bad it He's got. I think 19... Is it 1971 or 72 when PBS began broadcasting Monty Python in America? Uh, 74, actually, here in the U.S. 74? Okay. God, it was 74. So it actually was after its run in in, uh, Britain? Because that ended in 74. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, that's why I thought it might have been a little early because I saw your stat, 1969 to 74. So 1974, I was working in uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota which is 330 miles from Minneapolis-St. Paul. And I would drive down every weekend. So on Sunday night on Channel 2 locally in Minneapolis-St. Paul, the PBS station, the only one at that time. Now there are more, of course. But I would round trip drive 666 miles every weekend so I could watch one hour of Monty Python with my brothers. That's a true story. That is dedication. It is. <laughs> that is dedication. Or is it obsession? Not sure. Look, David, here's what caught me. When people, again, we talk about people hanging upside down on crucifixes and being tortured and all the rest of it. And the guard says to the guy, because the guy starts bitching and the guard says, you're only making it worse for yourself. And he goes, making it worse? <laughs> He's already hanging upside down, crucified, but somehow <laughs> he's trying to make it worse. <laughs> yeah. Now that's funny, David. Yeah, there are always people worse off than you. <laughs> yeah, there, there always are. How did you get involved with the whole Monty Python? Uh, the book is called Monty Python Speaks, David Morgan, our special guest. So I just want to hear uh, about, obviously you love Monty Python as much as I do, or maybe even more if that's possible. Uh, possibly, yes. Um, uh, they first came to my attention in the early 70s when uh, a lot of their records were brought over from England and they start playing them on FM stations here. That's how right. I first heard of it. And then in 74, they started running on PBS, and uh, so they became an obsession. And it was really unlike anything that had been on television before or since. Uh, it didn't play by the rules of TV comedy at all. It was very unstructured. It was very stream of consciousness. Uh, They didn't worry about whether sketches had punchlines. They didn't need them. Um, They were never really about stories or characters. They were just these comic, wild comic ideas that were just blasted at the audience nonstop. They got away with things. And I think that's what, because I kind of was a little rebellious as as a young man, I must say. But I think the first episode I ever saw of Monty Python was when John Cleese, as the vicar, came to visit a family. 
And he walks in. This is the vicar, which is basically like being a minister or a priest, I guess, mm-hmm. in America. They call them vicars. A uh, vicar walks into the house, and there are some very attractive women in the house. And the vicar says, I like tits. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. He makes a comment about the women's breasts, and he's supposed to be this holy man. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yes, and he can't keep his hands off them. Yeah. Right, he couldn't keep his hands off him either. I, I, you know, i got to sit back and shut up, David, because I'll drive you nuts because there's so many things I adore. So I want to hear your take on Monty Python. Um, well, as I, one of the things that I was most interested in writing the book was finding out how these six very different comic personalities can sort of complement one another and create something that was unique to the group that wasn't really anything like what they did in their solo work. I mean, if you look at John Cleese's uh, Faulty Towers, which is probably what he's best mm-hmm. known for outside of Python, it's a great situation comedy, but it's really nothing like Python. And Terry no. Gilliam's movies are terrific, but they're not quite Pythonic. Uh, Everybody else, Michael Palin, Terry Jones, Eric Idle, Graham Chapman, whatever they did, it didn't quite have that zany silliness that Python did. And I think working together, they sort of gave themselves the freedom and the liberty to be as ridiculous as as they could be. And when they were offered the opportunity by the BBC to have their own show in 1969, BBC did not put any limitations on them basically said you can do whatever you want and they did whatever they wanted it's true uh david to this day there's there's a show now on called hold the sunset with john cleese and i never miss it all these years later we're talking now what 54 years later whatever it is 1969 so it's 50 years yeah it is 50 years because they started in 1969 on the bbc 50 years of it I, I am still not even the least bit tired of Monty Python. If I see any of the people you mentioned, you know, Graham Chapman, unfortunately. I got to talk to Graham Chapman just before he died, which was a real thrill for me because mm-hmm. I've always, I, I loved him. Uh, you know, yeah. John Cleese, I've been on the same morning show. I do a morning show uh, as well, and I've been on the same morning show for 34, going into my 34th year now next month. Uh, so I got to interview every one of these people, Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Michael Palin. Phenomenal people, could not have more, been more giving in interviews, very friendly, mm-hmm. no attitude at all. And uh, that just made me an even yeah. bigger fan of Monty Python. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're wonderful to sit down and talk. And uh, they're, they're very free. They, they don't mind. Uh, I mean, they'll make fun of each other, but they're also... Uh, so respectful of each other's comic sense of humor, and they work with it so brilliantly. Um, and yeah, um, each of, each of those is remarkable talents. But working together, and of course they worked in teams. Like John Cleese and Graham Chapman worked together as a writing team, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, Terry Jones and Michael Palin as a writing team. And so they would complement each other by the differences in their personalities and their temperaments. And so that created a tremendous tension in what they were writing. Like uh, John Cleese would be very precise in his 
in his writing and the words he used. Whereas Graham Chapman was just way off on another planet somewhere, and he would mm-hmm. be pulling John Cleese with him into areas that he wouldn't have gone otherwise. Um, the freedom that they had on the TV show and then in the movies, it, it, it was nothing on television. And, no, uh, you're right. It's, there hasn't been anything like it. And in terms of their longevity, yeah, it's been 50 years, and they've all gone on to solo careers. But a few years ago when they um, got together, they had agreed to do a reunion show at the O2 Arena in London in 2014. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the show's tickets went on sale, 16,000 tickets sold out in 43 and a half seconds. And they had no idea that it would, it would have that demand, so they added another show. That sold out. Another one, another one, another one. They all sold out immediately. And the final show was actually um, transmitted by satellite to theaters around the world. And they had no idea that there would still be such a, a demand, such a love for Python, especially considering that uh, many people in the audience were like the children or the grandchildren of baby boomers who weren't around when the shows first went out. God, it just, all these lines keep come, popping into my head, David. We're talking to David Morgan about his book, Monty Python Speaks. The brilliance of a, a vicious sorcerer throwing fireballs and casting spells and all the rest of it. And he's asked, played by John Cleese, I believe. And he's asked, sorcerer, by what name do you go? And there's a long pause. And he goes, some call me Tim. <laughs> Tim the Sorcerer. Okay. <laughs> See, brilliant. But but I love, yeah, but I love the fact that he puts like a little question mark at the end of it. He goes, there's some right. of him. It's if he's not quite sure that's acceptable. It's not a good enough know, name yeah. for a sorcerer. All yeah. of them. Michael Pale no, and the Great Line. I, I have to say, Let's, yeah. Go ahead, sir. But, but my favorite bit, probably to this day, that still will crack me up regardless, has no lines. It's the fish slapping dance. It's oh, yeah. A yeah. Silly little bit with Michael Pale and John Cleese slapping each other with fish. And it, it doesn't mean anything, but it's just ridiculously funny. It is. It's terrifically funny. Even Michael Palin standing in a castle where there's been this vicious sword fight and people are being massacred everywhere around him. And Michael Palin says, let's not bicker and argue about who killed who. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it's great comedy. Because it boils yeah. life down to, I guess, it's to one degree. And it's just the ridiculousness of all that is life. You know, finding a sandal. Mm-hmm. This is the sandal of the Messiah, and I should know because I've followed a few. <laughs> <laughs> Great comedy. Was this a? This had to be a labor of love for you. Monty Python speaks. Had to be a labor of love. Oh yes. Um, when I, I first, the first edition came out um, twenty years ago for the thirtieth anniversary, and then we updated it for the fiftieth. So I also got uh. to speak with, um, for example, Hank Azaria, who. Was a Tony nominee oh, yeah. for Camelot, um, yep. and he got to play in the Python sandbox. He got to pretend to be a Python. I mean, who, who doesn't dream of doing something uh, like that? No, all of it. But, they, but I Gilliam, also, you know. I'll just say very quickly, Terry Gilliam, uh, originally from Minnesota, where where the show is based. Yeah. 
He's a nice, yeah. nice Minnesota boy. Did rather well and added a lot to that show with all of his, all of his drawings and graphics and all the rest of it. It was yeah. just fun. His, God, it was fun from start to yeah. Play. His yeah, his animation was the key to tying all these disparate comic bits together into a sort mm-hmm. of stream of consciousness uh, viewing. Um, and it was wonderfully surreal and, and revolutionary. And, of course, a lot of people, have, a lot of advertising has tried to copy the look. Uh, and, and yet, of course, away from Python, he's, he's stayed away from animation. He hasn't really done anything like that. He's done like what you might call real films, um, including mm-hmm. his most recent, the, uh, the Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which is finally coming out in theaters soon. Right. I... Um... I don't know the whole thing, as it as it shaped up. It, it just it it did. Look, I got to be honest with you. Monty Python changed my life and what I, because you know Jerry Lewis was Jerry Lewis, and I enjoyed that as a little boy and him acting like a clown and being so silly. Uh, I do want to ask you this, David. While they, while they did Monty Python did comment constantly on culture. I don't ever remember them being very political in their humor. Were they? Because I didn't notice if they were. Well, they weren't political in the sense where they uh, used the names of people. They, were, they didn't engage in topical humor, per se. So that's right. one reason why the comedy is so timeless, because you don't have to know who was Prime Minister of England in 1970 in order to get a joke. <laughs> right. But they right. dealt with political matters in more archetypes, like cabinet ministers, military police, um, and, and those are archetypes that are recognizable in any country at any time period. So, yeah, they'll make political statements, and, and they, they had a wonderful bit about election night of the silly party. And, you know, you get that. You don't have to be English to understand that, because every country no. has silly politics. They do indeed. The book is available everywhere, I'm hoping. I'm sure it is. It's on Amazon. I know that. Everywhere you can get um, real paper or electronic versions, yeah. I love it. David, thank you so much for your time. Great, great memories. I, Catherine saw the, the subject matter, and she said, oh, my God. And then she got up and left the room because she, she, she knew that I'd be going on and on and on about how much I love money, Python. <laughs> but I do. I just do, and I always will. David, thank you so much for your time today. Monty Python Speaks, the name of the book. David Morgan, thank you, sir. Thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Andy, it carried over to you, though. You were, you were a Python fan, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is a, from generation to generation, it carried over beautifully. It's, and Cassie, i got to believe you're a huge Monty Python fan, aren't you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I used to watch, sit and watch the movies with my dad, and we would just crack yeah. up laughing. It's just a flesh wound. <laughs> His arms It's just a flesh wound. He's got no arms, no legs. <laughs> He's hopping around. <laughs> Hopping around. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tom Bernard Show.